Well, I want to welcome to the Market Voice podcast, Tom Callahan, CEO of NASDAQ Private Markets and a familiar face to our industry. Tom has had a 30-year career in financial services with stints at BlackRock, where he ran their global cash management business, with NYC Life US, where he was CEO of that startup, Futures Exchange, and Merrill, where he was co-head of Global Prime Brokerage. I had the pleasure of working closely with Tom while we were both at NYC Euronex, where Tom ran the exchange, NYC Life US, and I ran the Clearinghouse, a joint venture of NYC and DTCC and New York Portfolio Clearing. And doing my best opposition research to embarrass Tom on this podcast, I also discovered that Tom was captain of the Harvard football team in his senior year. And until a season-ending injury after his second game, Tom was getting interest from NFL scouts. Is that true, Tom? <laughs> it is, which may explain some of my bizarre behavior from traumatic head injuries for my, my football career. But yes, I was the captain of the Harvard football team. I weighed uh, 330 pounds my senior year. Uh, my uh, academic major at Harvard was football, actually, uh, and had intended to uh, try. Uh, believe it or not, you know, futures and uh, private market securities weren't my ambition when I was 18 years old. Uh, I wanted to be in the NFL. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, I'm six six, so at six. 6, 3.30. Um, it seemed like a fairly logical career path until uh, fate interrupted and I hurt my back. And um, and here I am 30 years later uh, in the securities industry. But uh, it was a wonderful experience. But uh, given I, I read somewhere, I was a left tackle, the average um, lifespan of a uh, NFL uh, offensive lineman is something like 53 years old, and I'm 54 now, so I guess I'm, I'm grateful for that back injury. Yeah. Well, a lot of people get into our industry after being concussed, so that's uh, that makes some, some <laughs> no, sense. I, you know, that it's funny, sense. when when I got into it, and, and you and I met in the futures industry, and I started my career as a, as a bond trader, I think one of the reasons they hired me is because I was so big, because this is and the years before co-location, it was trading floors when screaming and yelling and intimidating people was sort of a strategic advantage. So I, I don't think it's an accident that I ended up, uh, you know, as a as a bond trader. As you know, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, ex gorillas like me prowling around the futures industry for exactly that reason. So, <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to have you here. And like I said, our we have a long history, but. I was uh, recently having dinner with Tom up in New York, and he was telling me about his new adventure. And um, you know, it's 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 fascinating to me because as we talked about it, uh, the private markets, uh, which are now running Nasdaq private markets, is a, a fascinating new marketplace. I shouldn't say a new marketplace, but one that maybe people aren't as familiar with. Um, you know, given the fact that the crypto market cap is somewhere around a trillion dollars. You were telling me about the the private markets and the size of that, and so give give our listeners a bit of a sense of the private markets, its size, and what intrigued you about coming into this this new proposition. Yeah, now, you know, you, you called it a new asset class, and and that's actually correct. Um, it, you know, so what? Let's define what we're talking about here. So when we talk about the private markets, we're talking about the market for trading private pre-IPO company shares, um, and how we define it is uh, VC-backed unicorns. Obviously, unicorns, private company worth 
um, over a billion dollars. So you go back um, a decade ago, there was 40 unicorns. You go back five years ago, there was 250 unicorns. Today, uh, there's over a thousand. There's actually close to 1,200 unicorns. So it's kind of ironic. The word unicorn has lost its 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 meaning a little bit. It was supposed to be this rare mythical creature. Well, now unicorns are actually quite common. Um, and and on the back of that, and really what's driven it is that uh, you've had obviously the explosive growth of venture capital, and so it's just easier for companies to access capital in the private realm and so many are, are choosing to do that um there was also a really important piece of legislation that happened back in 2012 under president obama it's called the jobs act it used to be that private companies could only have 500 shareholders and the jobs act increased it to 2000 so um really this asset class is a byproduct of that regulatory change it's now grown to a $4 trillion market. Uh, that's about four times the size as the crypto uh, market. It's about 15% um, of US GDP, just to put it in context, is about the same size as the as US municipal bond market. Uh, so it's an absolutely massive asset class, and it's an essential asset class because you know it sort of strikes right to the heart of the innovation economy, the most innovative companies in the world are incubated um, in Silicon Valley. And really, you know, those are the companies that then go on to become unicorns. Uh, and it's probably the thing more than anything that differentiates the American economy from any other economy in the world. It's our ability to innovate. And so this market is really essential uh, for, for a lot of really important reasons. And the reason that it intrigued me and the reason why I left a very happy nine-year career um, at BlackRock is, you know, I really feel like it's the last frontier of market structure. You know, in my 30 years, I've seen, I uh, started in the bond market, you know, as I said, we started off yelling and screaming at each other on floors and handing paper tickets to each other. Well, now, you know, the BlackRock bond trading floor is almost dead silent because the computers are doing almost everything. And, you know, markets just become automated and more efficient. And there's enormous benefits that accrue to investors by removing friction uh, and increasing transparency in markets. Well, I'd say that this $4 trillion uh, private market, while well, is really, it's probably maybe like the, the bond market in the 1940s. Um, it, there is no automation. The space has grown so quickly uh, that just no fundamental infrastructure that underpins every other asset class it just doesn't exist in the private markets. There's no settlement, there's no clearing, there's very little data. And so what's left is essentially just, you know, humans in the loop. Uh, buying and selling private shares in today's market is a lot more like buying and selling real estate than it is like buying um, any kind of public security. So uh, it's a big, huge, important market. It's um, desperately inefficient and we're trying to fix that. So if, if I'm, uh, uh staff member of a private company and and have been issued uh, equity as part of my compensation package but i'm interested in diversifying that and um trying to find maybe a buyer for some of my equity what what how would i go about that today not not talking about nasdaq private markets but what's the current system of how i might do that and what is nasdaq private markets trying to do to improve uh, that process 
Yeah, so so that's a that's a perfect use case because we deal with those types of clients uh, all the time. And you know, again, if the average company uh, is waiting now 14 years to go public, you know, if you're a, a 25 year old employee of a private company, it's kind of hard to tell them, well, wait 14 years to buy a house or you know to pay off your student loans or whatever it is. So this need for liquidity is real because it's a byproduct of private companies waiting uh, longer and longer and longer to go public. And let's also remember a lot of private companies are competing against public companies. Those public companies tend to give stock with a three-year cliff vest RSU that sort of has this orderly um, natural liquidity uh, mechanism built in. And so if you're trying to attract and retain employees as a private company, you literally have to offer them some partial liquidity or else you're just going to lose your talent. So it's it's a, it's just an essential talent uh, management and, and retention uh, tool. So how does it work now? Um, there are boutique brokers and a bunch of names you've probably never heard of before. Um, and uh, sometimes these people sort of troll LinkedIn and try to find either current employees or ex-employees and, hey, are you interested in selling? And I have a buyer. Um, you will engage with, with, that, um, with that broker. They'll shop around whatever their network is. You'll ask them basic questions like, well, what do you think this share is worth? And they'll go, well, I don't really know. And they'll come back to you with a price and you don't know if that's a good price or a bad price. Is that high or low? Has it traded before? You don't know. Commissions can be egregious, you know, six, seven, eight percent. Um, and based on almost no information, you know, with the best available price you get from that one two-legged individual, you know, you make your decision to buy or sell. And so we hear this from our corporate clients all the time, because uh, in the private markets, unlike in the public markets, companies need to approve share transfers. They don't just happen automatically. It's one of the friction points that we're working on, on automating. And we hear from CFOs all the time. I had three employees last week that all tried to sell shares. Uh, one sold at 27, one sold at 22, and one sold at 19. And I don't know if I should approve any of these. That's a terrible experience for a company. Um, they don't want their employees having to deal with that level of inefficiency. Um, so it's not, it's it's just not a, a good experience. So what we're trying to do, and this is you know my background, having operated exchanges, it's Nasdaq's DNA, is to tr try to create a orderly institutional regulated platform as exists in every other asset class and bring this to the private market. So when you as a seller of a, of a, of a piece of stock come to the market, you're gonna know that you're getting a fair price. Uh, you're not gonna be gouged on commissions. It's going to be regulated. The prices are gonna be real. When the trade matches, it's actually gonna settle, which seems kind of ridiculous, but in the private market, settlement times can be as long as three months. So we're trying to eliminate all these frictions. So just like if you wanted to sell a share of Apple Wallet, you'd pick up your iPhone and you could do it in 15 seconds. You know, it shouldn't be a six month project to try to sell a share of a private company. So that's what we're trying to that's what we're trying to do. And is there similar to other marketplaces? Is there price discovery? Is is there that that's happening so that in your example, you know, this idea of 27, 22, 19, 
um, that you could go and see, well, the, the, the latest market price for my my shares might be the following. So how, how does that work compared to other? Yeah, so markets? the answer is there's there's not. Um, there's not a, a, a tape. You know, one of the things that transformed the public markets was regulation requiring, you know, uh, exchanges to publish trade prints, tape A, B, C. Well, we actually created our data product um, because, again, these are private securities all issued under Reg D, um, our data product that's called Tape D. And so what we're trying to do is do exactly what you just said, which is to have a transparent uh, trade uh, repository where you can look and see where transactions happen. Now, that's easier said than done uh, because these are private securities and there is no regulatory requirement to um, uh, to publish these prints and companies don't have to do them. It's one of the luxuries of, of a private company staying private is they don't have to disclose any information they don't want to. So you have to use some ingenuity. Um, we have uh, obviously anything that trades on our platform becomes part of our, our data record. Uh, we also have a settlement service. Uh, we want to be the default settlement agent for the entire industry. So not just securities that trade on our platform, but anywhere they trade, we settle these um, the transactions. So we gather a lot of data um, through our through our settlement service. We pull in mutual fund marks. Uh, we pull in state filings um, from places like the st state of Delaware. Um, you know. The basically give get data programs with brokers. You have to kind of piece it together using a lot of ingenuity and a lot of technology. Uh, so it's a hard problem to solve, but it's really an essential one because even if you build the infrastructure that we talked about, if you don't solve the basic information problem, then really these markets aren't gonna aren't gonna advance. And I'm curious too. I mean, you're getting companies that are coming to you um, with various types of equity offerings uh, that may want to to sign up to your service. Do you find that they're unstandardized? Um, is there a standard to how private companies issue equity? And is is NPM trying to to solve for that to offer some standards so that that helps the process that you're talking about? We're actually not, and and that would be very logical to think that you would go to private companies and say, please do issue, you know, your stock in this standardized way because it'll make it easier to trade on our platform. Um, you know, these are innovative technology companies, and you know they've been successful because they've been disruptive and innovative. Um, and so, you know, we want to work with them. They all want to issue their equity securities in a way that makes sense to their employees, achieves their objectives. And so I think these are always going to be bespoke and customized. And we do see all sorts of interesting bells and whistles and features that certain companies put on their program and that works for them. Uh, and I think that that's healthy. Um, and so we're not trying to change that. There are others that are out there that are trying to do tokenized issuance in standardized form. I think the market may get there someday. Uh, but again, it's sort of the the luxury and the privilege of a private company is uh, you can kind of do things your way. And so we try to work with companies uh, with where they are and adopt our technology and our platform to suit their needs, not to try to get them to um, uh, uh, to suit ours. So we we have a, a few different um, programs and and platforms on 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 NPM. 
one of them and the thing that we've been doing for close to a decade now is where um, you talked about the use case where it's an ex-employee looking to sell a share. Uh, we run tender programs for companies where that's where the company itself is our client. And so uh, they will come to us and say, hey, uh, we want to offer 15% liquidity to all of our 600 employees. Uh, and can you please run a tender program for us? So it's largely a technology product. And we can do that a bunch of different ways. Sometimes the capital's coming from the company. Maybe they just did a primary round and part of their use of proceeds is to give liquidity back to their employees. Sometimes they come to us and they say, can you find us new investors? Go find capital for us. Sometimes the company wants to set the price. In today's market, it's really hard to know what a private company is worth. So companies come and they want us to run auctions and have a market-driven price. So all these are what I'm talking about of really being flexible and kind of working with clients to help them achieve their objectives. That's what our technology does. And I'm curious, you mentioned that your settlement service, um, and sorry if this is a dumb question, but is 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 clearing a concept that's part of that service, or is that something given the more bilateral nature of these things that you don't need? that type of counterparty risk management no, clearing. No, you you absolutely do. And counterparty risk is is critical. It's probably more acute in this market than any other asset class that I know of because it happens with some degree of regularity. Again, this is largely an unregulated space. There is no DTCC. There is no bony. There there's there's nothing. There's it's a bilateral market and people flake out on trades and fall down on trades. And you know, until NPM came along, there really wasn't a mechanism, you know, to police that bad behavior. And so, you know, once you match a trade, once you get the company to approve that, you know, oftentimes it could be a two or three month process to wait to see if your trade actually settles. And that's just unacceptable. I mean, you can't have any asset class that operates with uh inefficiency when you know when you match a trade in the public securities market you you don't spend a, a, a nanosecond worrying oh my gosh is this trade actually going to settle and is my counterparty going to be good um a, a yet in the private markets you, you you have to worry about all that and you have to you know docu signs and wet signatures and lawyers it's like i said it, it it has more in common with a real estate transaction than a securities transaction and 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 that wouldn't be a problem again if it wasn't a four trillion dollar market but it is, um, and you know, it's it's uh, it's a market where venture capital really struggles to put money to work. Um, and you know, one of the byproducts, Walt, of companies waiting to go uh, public longer is that if you're an investor, every investor is trying to um, uh, achieve alpha, right? They want to outperform, they want to deliver excess returns to their clients. Well, you know, companies that are IPOing at 14 years. Uh, by and large, now we're fully valued, and it's certainly maybe in the last few years, companies might have been a little bit more than fully valued when they IPO'd, <laughs> um, uh, uh, judging from from performance. So, if you're an investor and you want to uh, uh, get in on the hyper growth phase of a company, you're forced to the private markets. I mean, you can argue that by the time a company IPOs, it's almost too late. It's more beta than alpha. So there is huge investor interest. Um, you know, literally, uh, well, one of the metrics we looked at recently, there's $300 billion of investor dry powder looking to be put to work in private markets right now. 
But in the public markets, again, you know, you go to your trading terminal, you hit the buy key, and you're done. Um, it's nowhere near that easy in in the in the private market. So that's that's one of the problems we're trying to fix. Well, I want to talk a bit about NASDAQ and being a part of the NASDAQ family. Um, big fans of Adina Friedman and what she's doing there. But, you know, we worked also at NYSE uh, Euronext, uh, again, had a startup within a broader established infrastructure. Um, what attracted you to come in, into the NASDAQ family and how have they been helping the project? Well, Adina was a big part of it. I find her just incredibly inspiring um and, and I, I think what she's done with that company and in, in her tenure is has been just nothing short of remarkable and she has a enormous passion for mpm and the private markets uh she's a huge sponsor of, of 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 what we're doing and so i think a lot of it was just her vision her passion um for for this space uh as you know you know i i, I am not of the private markets i ran cash management, although is a little bit ironic. When I left BlackRock um, cash management, I, I thought I'd sort of left that world behind me. And then, of course, uh, the, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank happened, and all our private companies' uh, clients wanted to talk about was treasury management policies. So I, I had to start explaining people, again, the difference between a money market fund and a uh, and a bank deposit. So uh, my old life sort of uh, haunted me a little bit. But uh, back to NASDAQ, yeah, I mean, Adina had had, had, a, had a big part of it, and as she explained, you know, her vision for these markets uh, and how committed she was. Um, you know, listen, the NASDAQ brand, we are an independent company now. We did spin out of NASDAQ in uh, 2021, but we chose to keep the brand because in a space that is so um, uh, lacking in trust and credibility, you know, we walk into every room with the NASDAQ uh, uh, name on the logo and it it sort of gives us credibility from from day one and it's an enormous advantage they're a tech uh, uh partner of ours they're a data partner of ours um you know we we talk with them uh very very regularly and they're just uh hugely hugely supportive and frankly i don't think we could do it without their help one question i had for you and you you left a, a very established job and a, with a great company in blackrock uh for a you know, a startup. It's it's you know where there's probably greater risks. It's um, you don't have quite the luxuries of working for an organization with all the bells and whistles that go with that. Um, you know, we also some of my best memories are working with you and our good friend Lynn Martin, who's now running the New York Stock Exchange, sitting around whiteboarding things and you know making copies and you know buying T-shirts for giveaways. And I mean, it was it was you did everything right and. I'm just curious that obviously energized you and you were able to come back for a startup. But tell me, what, what is it that you love about the startup culture that really energizes you? Yeah, uh, and, and I I share those same memories, Walt, and I loved working with you. And that's where you and I got to know each other. And uh, it's uh, high highs and 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 low lows, you know. One day you think you're going to be Elon Musk, and uh, the next day uh, you think you're going to be digging ditches for a, a living. And and sometimes those two emotions happen in the same day. Uh, but it's 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 visceral and it's emotional um, and it's energizing. And I I loved every minute of it. And so when I went to BlackRock, 
it was a division, the cash management division in 2013 was sort of still suffering from the after effects of the GFC. And I think everyone knows the money market industry was hit pretty hard. Uh, it was a business that had had really declined from from it was one of the businesses that helped build BlackRock, but it really kind of come on hard times. So it it had about 250 billion in assets when I got there. And it was really a turnaround story of rebuilding, rebuilding tech, uh, rebuilding products, uh, rebuilding teams. And I was really proud in the, you know, the nine years that I was there, we took their assets from 250 billion to 750 billion um, when I left. And so that a business turnaround actually weirdly has a lot in common with a startup. And I'd say my first, you know, five years or so at BlackRock felt like a startup because we were trying to turn this this business around and all a lot of the same energy that goes into a startup. But then, you know, we built an incredible business there and it was mature and it was fixed and it was running incredibly well. And, and I missed the startup, you know, and I think you're the same, Walt. You're a market structure junkie. You love markets. And I really think the private markets are the last great frontier of market structure. They're so primitive. They're so enormous. They're so essential. I think we have an amazing opportunity to build uh, an incredible business, but also to help really advance um, a market that 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 needs it, frankly. And so, yeah, I'm right back to um, uh, my first day here at NPM, I went to a hardware store and bought a hammer so I could could uh, hang the, the whiteboards and uh, dealing with, with plumbers and uh, calling the guy to fix the copy machine and install the coffee maker. Um, uh, so yeah, all that sort of humbling stuff you do, but I've a lot like at, 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 uh, at, at Life when, when you and I work together, I've got an amazing team here uh, we collaborate. We're trying to solve hard problems. We work hard, um, and we're just all 100% in it, trying to build this amazing company. And you know, at 54 years old, to have an opportunity to do something like this again, uh, I feel so incredibly privileged. And I'm more passionate and energetic now than I've been uh, in a really long time. So having a blast. Well, that's great. And Tom, you're you know you're one of my favorite people out in the industry, and. I've not laughed as much <laughs> in the industry as when I'm around with you, and, and we've had a wonderful time. And uh, you know, I I, I got to tell one story about us. It's one of my favorites. But um, when we were trying to get NYPC approved by the CFTC, and at the time Chairman Gensler was was in charge of of doing that, and I was on a flight back to DC. And had a call from Chairman, a message from Chairman Gensler to call him immediately, which is not a good sign when you're up for approval. And uh, when I called him, I expected him to tell us that our, our clearinghouse had been disapproved. But instead, he told me that I was on a, a death list, that uh, somebody was trying to kill a bunch of public officials, and I was somehow on this list. And I was so happy that I wasn't disapproved. And my first call was to Tom Callahan to tell him that the good news that I was on a death list um, and that NYPC had not been disapproved and we were still alive. Uh, so we laughed about that. And uh, it's just one of my favorite Tom Callahan moments, um, laughing with you over the phone on that story. Oh, oh, thank God. There's just a hit squad out to get me. <laughs> It was such well, good stuff. 
Well, I but I remember, well, at that same time, uh, we were trying to get NYPC approved. It had taken forever. We were running out of cash and it was literally we felt like we were living day to day. And there was a there was a call where we thought we were going to get um, approval and uh, and we didn't. And it turned out it was going to be like another six months. And I remember sitting in my office just with, you know, just thinking that it was over. Um, and what is the the old saying that uh, success has many fathers and failures an orphan? And at those times in business, when you get those kinds of pieces of information where it looks like all is lost, it just it was an incredibly low moment. And I remember you called me then, Walt, and you were so positive as you always are, and so optimistic. And you're like, we're gonna get through this, and it's all still gonna be great. And and I needed it at that time. I'm usually a pretty optimistic guy, but um, I needed that pep talk at that moment, and you were absolutely right, because uh, not long after, we did get the approval that we needed. We did launch the clearinghouse. Um, it's the greatest clearinghouse that never worked. I think maybe <laughs> we were, what is the old saying, while being uh, right early is the same thing as being wrong. You know, we were trying to cross margin cash and futures and the damn contraption actually did work exactly as we said it would, um, but then circumstance conspired against us. But I'm still proud of, of what we built uh, together and uh, really so grateful for that opportunity to, to work with you. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm proud to call you a friend and I, I have no doubt you're going to be successful in this new venture and it's worth us keeping and monitoring closely because it sounds exciting. And who knows, maybe there'll be some interaction between our markets and your markets going down the road. So we're looking forward to that. And can't well, wait to when you, you rebrand yeah. from the Futures Industry Association to the Futures and Private Markets Association, <laughs> then I'll, I'll know that I've done my job uh, well, Walt. Yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Well, <laughs> well, thank you, Tom, so much for a wonderful podcast. And uh, we so appreciate you being a part of Market Voice. Well, I appreciate it, my friend. Thank you so much for including me. This was a real thrill. Thank you. Take care. NASDAQ Private Market LLC is not a registered exchange under the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. NASDAQ Private Market is operationally independent and distinct from the NASDAQ Stock Market LLC. Securities-related services are offered through NPM Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and SIPC. None of the information provided represents an offer to buy or sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security, nor does it constitute an offer to provide investment advice or service. Investing in private company securities is not suitable for all investors. It is highly speculative and involves a high degree of risk. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal, or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual, or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties, or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast content. Reliance on the podcast contents is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale, or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2022 FIA. 
All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.